Haggai chapter number two. Ooh. Haggai chapter number two. Am I coming through on the head mic, Brother Rob? Yep, okay. Haggai chapter number two. Where's Haggai? Well, it's after Zephaniah and before Zechariah. You didn't think that was funny on Wednesday either, but that's where it is. If you want to find Haggai, go to Matthew and turn back, I believe, three books in the Bible. Or if you have a Bible app, you have an unfair advantage. But that's where we'll be. Haggai chapter number two. Um, last, or really on Wednesday, we started in chapter one um, with really a series that whenever a pastor gives me the opportunity, I've titled, The Time Is Now. God sent Haggai to the people of Israel to tell them that the time is now to build the temple. And we talked about misplaced priorities on Wednesday, that God's priorities should never be at the mercy of our own pursuits. And tonight we're going to look at chapter number two, the first nine verses. I've titled the message tonight, Disappointed Expectations. Let's read a couple verses, and then we'll pray and we'll begin the message tonight. Look at verse number two of Haggai chapter number two. Here's what the Lord tells Haggai. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? He's talking about the temple. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Verse number four. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and what's the next word? Work, work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together tonight. Father, I'm excited about the truth uh, that, that is in this passage, Lord, and how it could help us as a church and help people um, here tonight from all sorts of different sets of circumstances. And Lord, my prayer is that you'd help me to be clear, uh, to be relevant, and God, that your word would bring some true help to people tonight. Uh, Lord, I pray be a good time around your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, as a man, and really as any man should, I have a love-hate relationship with Pinterest. Let me explain. Some of you are like, you should just have a re hate relationship with Pinterest. I don't know why you even have it on your phone. Um, as a if you don't know what Pinterest is, I should probably put this disclaimer in. Pinterest is an app. Instead of looking at a trade magazine, you can go on Pinterest, and if you want ideas for a cute cake or how to announce that you're pregnant again, you go to Pinterest. If you're a photographer and you need to ho know how to pose a couple, you go to Pinterest. If you want to know how to renovate your home, you can go to Pinterest. It has all sorts of grandiose ideas of cute little projects you can do. Pinterest is the one-stop shop for every new adventure you have in your life. The great thing about Pinterest is that you get to see what other talented people around the world can do with baking, home improvements, decorations, home renovation, and everything else imaginable. The bad thing about Pinterest is that you get to see what other great and talented people can do around the house 
and with everything else in life. Because here's the thing. I don't know if you've experienced this like I have. You see a picture, and you set out to do what the picture says and the instructions that come with it, and you set out to have this expectation that you're going to fulfill. And then there's reality. You see what Pinterest shows you you could do, and then when you follow all the steps and you follow the formula that they give you, it turns out into something far less beautiful and far less worthy of being on Pinterest. I, uh, I watched a, a TV show lately that perfectly expresses what I'm talking about. Um, I highly recommend it. It's a great way to get a laugh. It's called Nailed It. On this show, they, they gather three contestants from various walks of life. And the, the one thing that all three of these people have in common is that they all think they're good bakers. And I think they trick them into coming on the show and just, oh, we're going to teach you how to be even better and not realizing that they're actually going to be made fun of and they're going to make a fool of themselves on the show. And all of them, they show like these little cell phone videos they take themselves. And some of them even have baking businesses, which is going to blow my mind, blow your mind when you start seeing the pictures I'm going to show you. They, they really think they're great. And their kids tell them, Mom, I don't know if you should be baking cakes anymore. I don't know if that's really your thing. But they say, no, I, I really think it's my calling, my true talent. And they give them this cake that would be a challenge to any talented baker. Exhibit A is Rapunzel. I mean, that is, I, I mean, so much detail. Uh, I know we have some talented bakers in the room tonight. That is just beyond me. Like, how, how could you even do that? And then they have to try and make something just like that. They give them instructions. And here's... I'm not sure if it's like Rapunzel sliding down like a river rapid, like, ah. Uh. There's Rapunzel. My favorite is the self-portrait cookie. You can show the next one. The expert baker made a, self, a portrait of the lady, and then that's <laughs> that scary thing that's going to haunt you in your dreams tonight is what she made. <laughs> And then the best one of the whole show is the Donald Trump cake <laughs> that will keep you awake tonight. I think part of the reason that it's so bad is not only are they a terrible baker, but I don't know if they really like President Trump too much. We all know what it's like, don't we? To set out with a project and for expectation to be far different than reality. Don't you? And it's laughable when a Pinterest recipe doesn't turn out the way that you'd hoped. But let's be honest. We all carry Pinterest-like expectations into real life. You have expectations about where you would be financially by now. You carry expectations about how long it would take you to start a family. You carry expectations of what you hoped your health would be at this stage in life. And it's those real life expectations that can be the most disappointing when they don't match up with reality. In Haggai chapter number two, we're going to look at some people who had the same struggle. They had really high expectations, but their reality was far from what they expected. 
to get an understanding of what we're going to talk about in chapter number two, we have to go back a little bit and talk about what Israel's life was like 70 years prior to chapter number two. Now, we've talked about this a couple times, but it's really important to understand. In 586 B.C., the nation of Israel was carried away captive to Babylon. That was a bad deal. We'll talk about that in a second. But before 586 B.C., Israel as a nation enjoyed the type of status and prosperity that America enjoys today. And they, they were wealthy. Um, they almost always won the battles that they had. I mean, they were one of the strongest nations in the world for quite a while. They were known as a world superpower. People couldn't explain it because they were such a tiny nation, but every time they went to war, it just seemed like something happened and they beat the enemy. Of course, we know it's because God was on their side. Unemployment was low. The cities were, were, were a testament to how prosperous they were, and really, in general, life was good. The peak of Israel's influence and wealth, as many of you know, was during the reign of Solomon. Now, Solomon was so successful as a ruler, the Bible tells us that there were rulers from very, very far away that would come and travel and visit Solomon and would sit down and say, Solomon, please explain to me how you've become so successful. They would look at his kingdom. They would look at his wealth. They look at his, uh, the peace that he enjoyed because th no one would dare challenge their military strength. And they would just wonder how Solomon was able to pull it off. And then during Solomon's reign, the nation finally had the peace and the wealth to be able to pull off the one thing they wanted to do for a very long time. They finally had the opportunity to build a temple for the Lord. David wanted to do it, but God had said, no, it's not your time. I'm going to allow Solomon to do it because he's going to enjoy a reign of peace. Now, I'm, I'm going to try my best to help you see this, but Solomon constructed the most beautiful temple you could ever imagine. The, the temple was 90 feet long. It was, I believe, 30 feet wide and 45 feet feet tall. It was, it was a very large structure, and it was very prominently placed in Jerusalem. Um, so much cedar wood was used for the construction. Get this, Solomon had to repay King Hiram, who gave him all, all of that lumber. He had to pay him in 20 cities. I mean, can you imagine the United States buying so much resources? They say, here, take so Southern California. We don't want them anyway. I mean, that's what it was. That's how much stuff he bought. I read an article, it's in 2013, so maybe the, the price of gold they used is a little inaccurate. But it's described how much gold and silver was used in the construction of the temple. This is a 3D model someone made up. I'm sure it pales in comparison to the real thing. Listen to these statistics. Um, he estimated that based on the Bible weights and then converting them to pounds, that the temple had over 8 million pounds of gold. A space shuttle weighs 4 million pounds. So they had as much gold as would be the, the same weight equivalent as two space shuttles, full of gas and everything, ready to go. Not only that, it had 76 million pounds of silver. And if you estimate the cost of gold in 2013, based on those weights, the estimated worth of the temple in just precious metals alone was 215 billion dollars now for reference the freedom tower which is in new york city on ground zero 
fourth most expensive skyscraper in the world, and it's only worth $4 billion. This thing was unfathomably beautiful. It was a testament to the nation's wealth. But here's the thing about the temple. It was more than just a building. It was super important to the nation's um, identity. Its lavish decor was more than just them showing off. It represented the wealth that they had as God's people. That the God they claimed to serve owned a cattle on a thousand hills. Its large structure represented their strength as God's people. And that when they went into battle, they could trust. When they looked at the temple, as a reminder that they served the Lord of hosts, the God of all armies. Its central location represented their covenant relationship with God. And that it wasn't just physically the center of their lives as a nation, but God was supposed to be in the middle of their lives, that, he, that everything they did was about him. The temple was everything. It was their identity. But unfortunately, in 586 B.C., when Babylon came and ransacked the nation and carried away the people captive, this beautiful structure was no longer standing. In fact, it became just a big pile of rubble. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you can look at the ruins there of maybe some pieces of wall that are left over, and you can literally see marks in the wall where Babylonians scraped the gold off the side as they pillaged and and stole from the city as they came in and ransacked it. I want you to imagine what it was like to be one of the older generation in Israel. You don't live at home anymore. You're carried away to another nation. I mean, think about it. it. It was 70 years from when they were carried away captive to when they were brought back. Most of you would have never known another life but Babylon. That's all you would have known. And I could just picture in my mind that, that you know, Grandpa would get everybody around and he'd start talking about Israel. And, and, and you know, Dad would ask Grandpa, hey, tell us about Israel. And he'd start telling about how, man, we used to be the soup. You know how Babylon has taken over everybody? That's what Israel was. We had that type of strength. Our army, we were small, but we were mighty. And then little grandson climb up on Papa's leg. Papa, tell me about the temple again. And Papa would go, and, oh, man, you, the temple was just so beautiful. And he'd talk about the gold, and he'd talk about the furniture, and he'd talk about how large it was and how it represented their strength as a nation. And he'd always end the talk saying, now, remember this. God doesn't want us to be in Babylon forever. There will come a day when God brings us back. And we're going to build a temple again. And we're going to be just like what we used to be. Fast forward to Haggai chapter number 2. They started building the temple, the new temple. And as it got near to completion, the older generation began to realize that this new temple was not quite like the old one. Look at verse number 3. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as of nothing? The old temple was lavishly decorated with gold and silver. The new temple was plain and practical. 
The old temple was built as a permanent place for God's presence to dwell. The new temple had the same purpose, but it actually looked a whole lot like the tabernacle that they moved around the wilderness. The old temple made a statement about their strength as a nation, but if the new temple made any statement, it made this. Here's a nation that's poor and weak and vulnerable. When the, when the people of Israel looked back on the temple that they were building, they couldn't help if the new temple made a statement about their relationship with God. You see, they wanted to believe God was present. But every time they thought about God being present, they couldn't help but look at the temple and wonder, is he really there for us like he used to be? They couldn't help but wonder if their present circumstances were a sign that God was not as present as he was in the good old days. You could say it like this. They wondered if a less impressive temple meant that they had a less present God. If this is what our temple looks like, what's it going to look like when we go to battle and try and fight a foreign nation? Are you with me tonight? And, and here's the truth. That all of us have the same tendency as the nation of Israel. We, we look at our temple. And we wonder sometimes if our circumstances make a statement about God's presence in our life. And here's what happens. We begin to wonder and we begin to God, judge God's presence in our lives by the circumstances we are given. That we wonder, God, I, I expected that I would be in a certain place by now, but I look at the temple. I look at what my reality is, God, and it doesn't, it doesn't show a strong testament that you're in my life. Would you agree tonight, it's easy to have faith in God when you're on the mountaintop. It's easy to have faith in God when you can look back at the temple and you see something amazing, and you see something impressive and, and, and well-decorated, and there's circumstances in your life that make it very obvious that God is there. It's not hard to trust that God's with you when you have margin in your bank account. It's not hard to trust that God is with you when your health is better than you would have expected. It's not hard to trust that God is with you when God gives you a healthy, brand new baby. But aren't there times in our lives, church, we go through seasons. And we look at the circumstances in our life and we can't help but wonder, God, where are you in this? You hear a preacher talking about God's presence, but you look at the temple and say, Where's God when I've been trying for years and years and still can't have a child? It seems like everyone else in our church is having babies left and right. The nursery's growing and growing and growing. But my family's not. Where's God in that? You expected to share a lifetime friendship with somebody, but your relationship with that person, you thought you would be close to them for years and years and years, but your relationship looks a whole lot like the old temple. It's just a pile of ruins. You thought you'd be married by now, but the only weddings you're attending are the ones of people 10 years younger. You look at the temple and you say, God, where are you? You prayed as desperately as you knew how, but your parents still ended up separating. You're dealing with the consequences of your sin, and it seems like that maybe because of the circumstances of your life, you look at the consequences you're dealing with, and you wonder, God, will my relationship with you ever be the same again? Because I look at the temple, and it doesn't look like you're here. 
I'm convinced that some of the greatest struggles in our life happen when, when what we expected life to be is so different from what our life became. Are you, are you with me tonight? Only five of you are with me. Are you with That our expectations are so different from our reality. These men, the, this older generation in Israel, they're at the side of the temple, they're literally weeping. And they look at the temple and they say, God, it seems like your favor isn't upon us like it used to be. And here's the encouraging thing tonight, church. That God cares so much about you, and God cared so much about these people, that at one of the darkest moments of their life, when one of their greatest disappointments happened in life, that God had an encouraging word to give to them that he has in verses 4 through 9. And tonight I want to show you just two promises that God gives us when our expectations don't match our reality. And here's number one. One of my favorites. Here's number one. God is present even when I don't feel him. Look at verse number four. God is present even when I don't feel him. Look at verse number four. He says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. And be strong, O ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. What's the next part? For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Here's what happened. There were some fears in their life that were associated with their circumstances. They looked at the temple and they began to wonder, God, what's going to happen if we come into contact with another nation and have to go to war? If your presence in our lives looks anything like the temple that we have in our nation, I can't help but wonder if maybe we're not going to win that battle. God, can we be sure if, if, the emperor, if the ruler of Babylon isn't going to just change his mind and make us come back or send somebody to just wipe out our nation because he's not happy with us anymore? They couldn't help but wonder, God, how are we going to build a sustainable economy again? And here's what was going on in their mind. Lord, how can we be sure that you're with us? Because when I look at the temple, I can't help but wonder if you are. Look at verse number five. He says, I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Look at verse five. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you. Fear ye not. Here's what God's saying. Listen, listen tonight. You don't have to feel God's presence to trust in it. That you're not always going to feel like God is with you. I know popular Christian culture wants us to think that God's presence is a feeling, but God's presence isn't a feeling. God's presence is a promise. And he says that you don't have to feel like I'm with you to trust that I'm with you because he said, I told you that I'd be with you hundreds and hundreds of years ago when you left the land of Egypt. I told you that I'd be with you. And and he said that when you don't feel like I'm near, I'm not going to point you to some feelings Just go back to my word and you can trust that I'll be with you. You know, a lot of times we think that our fears indicate the absence of God. We think, God, because I'm afraid in my circumstances and because I have these fears, maybe it's because you're not with me. But in reality, here's what our fears show. Our fears don't indicate the absence of God. Our fears show the absence of our own faith. That we haven't trusted in God's truth. 
God is present even when I don't feel him. God's present when I don't feel him. You may not feel like God is there with you when the house feels empty, but God promised he's with you. God is present with you even when you wake up every day with the burden that you feel like life will never be the same again. God is with you when you're sitting around the table trying to figure out how you're going to get all the bills paid. God is with you when you're sitting in a hospital room having no idea how the surgery is going to turn out. And we could say a lot of times, God, I don't know that you're here because I look at the temple, I look at the circumstances, and I can't know for sure that you're in my life based on what my circumstances are. But here's what God says, you don't have to feel me, you just have to go back to my word and trust what I've already said. Because listen church, even on your darkest day, Hebrews 13.5 is still the same thing. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things that you have. Why? For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What's he saying there? Even when the temple is not impressive, you can be content because God is with you. God is present in your life. God's present even when I don't feel him. Here's number two. God is working even when I can't see it. God is working even when I can't see it. Look at verse number six. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. I mean, I don't know about you. When I first read that, I thought, I have no idea what he's talking about. But here's what, what God's getting at. In, in the context of what we read, here's what had happened. The nations that surrounded Israel had shaken Israel. I mean, as a nation, they were shook. They had been carried away captive. Their total direction as a nation was just totally off course from what they thought it would be. That the nations around them had totally just pillaged them and, and, and taken everything they could from them. But here's what God is saying. Is that even though the nations have shaken you, and even though the nations looked at Israel as powerless and insignificant, here's what God is saying. The day would come when the desire of all nations would come. That, that through Israel, there would come an anointed one. And this anointed person would come, and he would set up his throne in Israel, and all of the nations would no longer look to Israel as some unimpressive little bit of a joke of a nation. But they would look at Israel and they'd say, and they would see the ruler of all nations that would sit upon his throne. And here's what God is saying. You know where that throne's going to be? Right here on the same dirt this little tiny temple is. That right now you look at the temple and it's small and it's unimpressive and it's a testament to your poverty and your weakness as a nation. But God says, let me promise you one thing. The day will come when my son, Jesus Christ, will sit upon his throne and he will rule and reign and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Israel will no longer be looked at as this small, pitiful nation. They will be looked at as the strength of the entire world. The desire of all nations would come. 
Look at verse 9. He says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace. Here's what God is saying. Even though Israel messed everything up, their biggest failure as a nation had carried them away captive and had, and had changed the course of their nation for 70 years. Even though they really messed up bad, as bad as they had messed up and as bad as their circumstances looked, their circumstances could not shake God's purposes. The, no matter what they did as a nation, and no matter what the scene looked like, God's purposes for them as a nation had not changed. God is working even when you can't see it. You know, Pastor, sometimes I think when our reality doesn't match our expectations, we think God's in heaven wondering what he's going to do. How am I going to help the Varnes family? How am I going to help Sandra Ramirez's family? But can I remind you tonight that your circumstances, no matter how bad they are, they're a part of God's plan. We may not understand how all that works together, but we do know that God allows everything into our life. And if that, if that is true, then it's also true that God will never waste a hurt. That even in your, your deepest pains, God is still at work in your life. He's at work. Well, it'd be really nice to know how God's working in this one. I don't know about you, but I've said that. Man, God, I, I really wish I could see what you're trying to do. But while I can't tell you maybe specifics like Haggai gave these people, there are some unshakable purposes that God has in his word that he will always perform, that will never be stopped and will never be hindered no matter what happens in your life. And here's two of them. Number one, God is working to conform you into the image of Jesus. God is working to conform you in the image of Jesus. He will not give up. He will not back down. It doesn't matter what circumstance comes into your life. God always plans on using whatever circumstance comes into your life to make you more and more and more like his son, Jesus. We love the verse, Romans 8, 28. And we know all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. But we always forget verse 29. Because the good and the purpose that God is working out in your difficulties is in verse 29. And here's what it is. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son. What is God doing? He's working you. He's working to conform you in the image of Jesus. And here's number two. God is working to redeem you from this sin-cursed earth. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter how you fail God. If you're a blood-washed believer of Jesus Christ, this world is not your home. And the day will come when the desire of all nations will come, and you will no longer be, be identified by your struggle. Your weakness will no longer identify you. Your health crisis will no longer be part of your identity. The only identity you'll have in that day is that you're a child of the king. And that God will have redeemed you from this earth. That's it. Verse 9, Haggai preaches the message, closes his Bible, and he's done preaching. 
I want, I want you to think about this, and we'll, we'll be done tonight. That, that those people there at Haggai's temple, they had two choices that day. They could either, one, pout, gripe, or, or just remain and wallow in their difficulty, in their circumstances. I mean, that would be the easy thing, wouldn't it? I mean, they had plenty of people who shared their sentiment about, man, I, I really wish things would have turned out different. They, they had people who would have felt bad for them. They had people who would have, you know, said sorry and, and would have been right there with them. I'm not talking about mourning. These people allowed this grief and this difficulty to affect their work for God. That was one choice. Or they could have just placed their faith in God's promise and courageously worked through their disappointment. That even though life hadn't turned out how they wanted it to, they had the choice to trust in God's promises, pick up a shovel, and finish building the temple. And doing what God had called them to do. That's our choice tonight. We can allow our circumstances to define us and weigh us down to excess where God uh, God's work is not continuing. Or here's what we can do. We could serve God and go forward and build the temple. Every head bowed and every eye closed tonight.